strength will be restored. You will run and not be tired. You will be inspired to wait upon the Lord. Wait on the Lord and you will find new strength. Wait on the Lord and you will phrase or not, but um, it comes to my mind a lot that from day one, it never gets easier, it just gets different. Somebody mentioned about adult children, something to worry about, pray about, still there, and it is a reminder that um, that's how God views his children as well. It's not a matter of stage of life, it's a matter of the relationship. Boys and girls, why don't you come out here? Uh, we're going to dismiss you to Kids Church, but I have a job for you before we do that. So come on out here, and we are going to, um, we got some flowers to distribute. I need all the boys and girls up here. And by the way, you'll notice in your bulletin some congratulations. We had six people baptized last week. If you were not here last week to see that, uh, you can see their names in the bulletin and let them know that um, you're proud of them for being bold and stepping up and getting wet and coming back up again and um, um, standing up for Jesus and making a statement of their faith. Here's what I'm going to do. I would like all of the great-grandmothers to stand up now. How many great-grandmothers? We've got a few here. So I need some volunteers. Boys and girls are going to bring them a flower. And let's start with the big ones here. Um, take one and just start at the back. And uh, I think I might have enough here for, I'm going to try to get them out of here. You find one that's standing and bring a flower to her. And you sit down once you get your flower, then we know who all has them. Okay, Jackson, find a lady who's standing and uh, give her a flower. Let's start with you. Go find somebody who's standing way in the back, I see, or on that side. I see one over here. Ah, this is the first time we've 
use this method, and uh, <laughs> we'll see. Now, grandmother, stand up. Great-grandmothers, you go ahead and all sit down. I know that you're great-grandmother, you're also grandmother, but we're going to do it this way so we can distinguish between the uh, categories. Find a grandmother and then sit down as soon as you get your flower so the boys and girls can know who to bring one to. Just find somebody who's standing up. Anybody standing up yet? Oh, there's quite a few. <laughs> Oops, that one broke. Take that anyway, and then uh, because they're grandmothers, they can fix it. How about you? You want to take one? Okay, find somebody standing up, and I'm going to start back over. There's two there, so give one to Coco here. <laughs> and go ahead. Any more? Are we missing one? Luke. All right, now... You, everybody got one? You got one extra? Just stay right there then, uh, Coco. And now, grandmothers and great-grandmothers stay seated. Mothers, you stand up. Um, Jonathan and Laura, find a mother to give one to. And you need one. And I'm going to start over. I think we need to start over. Jonathan, Coco, Laura, one in the nursery. I think we covered all the mothers and the grandmothers. Uh, mothers and grandmothers, we applaud you for your role and mission. Now join me in prayer, Father. We are grateful for these boys and girls. We ask that you will bless them in the kids' church at this time. Speak to them. Show them your love. And also, Lord, we pray that you will bless these mothers, grandmothers, and great-grandmothers, the role they have. Uh, that's a calling from you. And we ask that you will touch and bless them and use them in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to have you turn in your Bible, but not just yet. We're going to use the scripture passages that are on the back of your insert. You have an insert there that on one side, it says a mother's heart, God's heart. That's going to be the last portion of scripture we're going to look at. And the first parts, we're going to jump right over to the verses. Um, and, uh, and that's going to be right probably right after the title of Lease. Um, it's, it's in, and if you're using this, God gets it. It's, it's the side of the white page that says there's uh, seven different verses. And the reason why I put these together is because these are the, um, uh, some metaphors that talk, metaphors and the descriptions of God and his love for us um, that describes his compassion and what is often associated with motherly love. In fact, there are some metaphors that actually uh, uh, are called. So let's just go through those and I want to show you the big picture of how God is described. I should mention that that uh, metaphor is not the same as identity necessarily, but I think it's pretty obvious that God is above um, the gender question, and the gender question and the mother role certainly comes together at some point, uh, because God is greater than male or female. He created man, male and female, according to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, mankind, male and female, the human race. Uh, but nevertheless, God then must be above that in some logical way. He's incorporates both of those qualities in order for him to be God, the creator. Although he reveals himself in the scripture in the masculine and is called father. Of the 7,000 times that God's name is used in the Bible, they are all in the masculine uh, gender. 
uh, male, that is, and father is the title name, or that's actually an appellative, but uh, the title name that is used most. There are about 20 metaphors that, are, uh, that do use a feminine description. And those are the ones that we want to concentrate on today. I don't want, to, uh, I don't want the issue of God's nature and his way of revealing himself to us to be the issue today, but I want to concentrate on the part of God's revelation of himself that draws attention to qualities that are typically associated with women and mothers, and that's certainly um, a, a part of the revelation that God gave of himself to his people. Now let's just start with the verses here that you'll find on your insert, and you don't need to look these up, it take a long time to be looking these all up, but I got seven of them here that I want to refer, uh, refer you to. Psalm 24, verse 1, we'll start with, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The Bible starts in Genesis 1 with God the Creator for a reason. God really is the Creator and the owner and the supervisor of everything that goes on in this world. And by so, by extension, when we talk about roles like mother father, or any other kind of role, sibling, or any kind of relationship, we're in the territory of God is really the one that we answer to ultimately in these things. And this might be instructive to us in the parenting role in two ways. Number one, uh, in one way, if you look at the history of man, kind, God uh, failed as a parent. I don't know if you've ever thought of that, but uh, God, the perfect God, and a perfect parent Nevertheless, created Adam and Eve in such a way that they could choose to go the wrong way. And they did. And you did. And your children do. And everybody does, at least some of the time, go the wrong way. So it is not always a reflection on the quality of the parents to know that children, whether they are children in the Pidea sense or the adult children sense uh, there's no harm or shame in saying I am like God in the sense that my children aren't always doing what I would like them to do or what they should do that is a good thing to remember when you're frustrated or stressed about your children and it comes back to you in the sense that what did I do wrong? Possibly something, but possibly nothing. Because it happened to God too. And if you're asking the question, what did God do wrong in raising his children or creating them in his own image, then you've got the wrong God. That's not a question that makes any sense with the biblical revelation of who this God is. So it's entirely possible to do a good job and have an outcome that you don't particularly like. Or that is even wrong. Because that is an objective term of assessment as well. Uh, so that's God. Well, now the other thing that is important in thinking about the roles that we're speaking about when we talk about the family. Is that um, we are ultimately responsible to raise children to glorify God, walk with God, and have a relationship with God, and to serve God, ultimately. That's kind of good to know, because the guidelines uh, that you are given, that we are given, um, have to do with 
if God is the creator and everything according to this passage or like this passage says really belongs to him, people and all, then our mission as parents is not just to make spitting images of ourselves. Unfortunately, that happens maybe more than you want. And if you don't consider that an unfortunate byproduct of parenting, then you probably are a little too proud for your own good. Because your parents being like yourself is a natural result. For better or for worse, they're not going to be perfect because their parents aren't perfect, for one thing. But even if you were perfect, like God was, they still get to make choices. They're real human beings, just like you are. I have heard many times, and I have said this many times, if I could only keep my children from having to learn the lessons that I learned the hard way, I would love to do that. But it can't always be done. Sometimes you can. But unfortunately, the most corrupt people are those who have been sheltered from learning the lessons the hard way. In other words, we call them the spoiled rich, the sheltered elite. Those turn out to be the most corrupt because they've been sheltered from things that are not good for the growth process. Deuteronomy 32, verse 18. Uh, this is Moses' final, it's in what is called the Song of Moses, and he is reminding the Israelites before he departs. You are unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Now using this um, parenting metaphor for the people of God, the Israelites, not just the creator, but the Israelites. God calls them his children. And Moses is challenging the Israelites to remember it's God who gave you birth. Now this would obviously be a mother metaphor because men don't give birth, women give birth. Uh, I suppose someday biologically some surgery will change that, but I don't think so. And um, I'm kind of hoping not. It uh, doesn't sound like a good idea to tinker with this beautiful design that God came up with. But um, uh, you are unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Now here is a chance for me to say that a metaphor is a metaphor, not an identity. God is not a rock. But the metaphor of rock is used of God. That's an interesting feature of God's character. He's strong and solid, and, uh, but you can't look at a rock and say that's God because it's not an identity. It is a metaphor. It's a description of something that's larger than whatever is it, it's being compared to. And then Deuteronomy 32, verse 11 to 12, like the eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, God spreads wings to catch you and carries you on pinions. Now, once again, it's a metaphor. God is not an eagle. Uh, and eagles are not God, although I suspect there are people who worship eagles, uh, but eagles are not God. But like an eagle, stirs up its nest. If you've ever watched an eagle or a bird, a mother bird, in operation, you know exactly this, this is a picture that comes right out of life. Uh, we used to live in a location where many people lived high in, um, on cliffs and mountains, and they could actually, some, in some occasions, we've watched this by going to their house, and they... They get a lot of joy out of watching eagles building nests in the trees lower than them. And you can actually look down into the nest. It's a beautiful thing to see. And this is exactly what happens. Uh, like an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, God spring, uh, spreads wings to catch you and carries you on pinions. 
uh, when the baby eagle falls out of the nest, jumps out of the nest, or gets pushed out of the nest, then the mother eagle, if the little one's in trouble, is right down there, and it lands on the eagle, takes that baby back up. That's an interesting metaphor, and a beautiful one, too. This is a role that uh, God is more than happy to use as a picture of himself, a metaphor of himself. In Hosea, chapter 11, verse 3 to 4, Hosea is one of the prophets that spoke to what are called the northern tribes. Ephraim is a name for it. Uh, when they were rebelling against God, and he says, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. This is God speaking here. I who took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. God is using a picture here of the role of a caring mother toward those who are in a present state. Hosea's mission was to challenge them and to warn them about what they were doing, walking away from God and living in a state of moral disgust. And God is warning them, remember, this is, this is how I have cared for you. I love you. These things I'm saying to you aren't because I'm mad at you or hate you or just want to see you suffer. These things I am saying to you are because I love you and I have proven it. I have demonstrated my love to you. And then Hosea 13, two chapters later. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and tear them asunder. You remember, might remember a few years ago a political cam campaign. Um, who is this? Sarah Palin and um, John McKay. Sarah Palin, yeah, she was the vice president. And she popularized this expression, the mama bear. I'm a mama bear going after anybody who is attempting to tear apart the family. I think it's actually a good metaphor. It's a good metaphor because it's actually one that God used, the mother bear. And if you've ever been in bear country, you know that this is, this is a warning that's actually posted on signs for a good reason. Do not get between a mother bear and, their and her cubs. It's deadly. The most dangerous bear of the whole species is not a species of bear, but a mother bear who has cubs somewhere in the vicinity. An interesting analogy that God uses uh, of himself, like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and tear them asunder. God is saying, if you are willing I, and, and are willing to treat me as the cubs treat the mother bear, I will protect you. But if the cubs want to go off on their own, then that's a different story. Isaiah 66, verse 13, as a mother comforts her child, so I'll comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Now, once again, location matters. The location is mentioned because the Israelites had their choices to make. And you cannot always become under the umbrella of God's protection unless you are willing to put yourself under that umbrella. There's no indication with God's dealing with the Israelites and with the Christians, his children, this special relationship we're talking about now. There's no indication anywhere that God will chase you down and emotionally abuse you, uh, emotionally make you love him, make you come under that umbrella of protection. He's many, all through these promises are always tied to the condition of, but I will not force you, I will not force this. There's two parties to this arrangement. 
Buddy uses this metaphor or this illustration as a mother. That's the clue, like, or as, a simile or a metaphor. A mother comforts her child. This is a way that God wants to relate to us using this commonly known way of relating and compassion and care. And then Matthew 23, the last one, verse 37, Jesus speaking here, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus is not suggesting that God is a chicken. He's suggesting that God is like a mother hen who, like a mother hen who protects their baby chicks. We just saw um, yesterday a um, mother duck with two baby chicks swimming in the in the river and that those little chicks they uh, they would swim over here and the mother would just kind of swim right around them. we didn't see in this case the mother putting her wing over them but that's what happens in a storm the mother chicken puts her wings out and the babies they come under it and they get protection from the storm or when there's a dangerous animal around that's a way that he operates interesting analogy here that Jesus picks up on and tells them I'd love to be their protection but if you don't want it I can't do it. That's the arrangement. His respect for boundaries goes with willingness, God's willingness to be there for us. But he will not force himself on you or on us or on our country, the church, any category you wish. Now let's turn to 1 Samuel 1. I'm going to read the story. I'm going to read it all the way through and make some comments about that. The Bible is a collection of stories that are interspersed with um, didactic sections or teaching sections. You may find this on page 190 in your book. It's uh, 1 Samuel in your Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible. It uh, appears right after Ruth, Joshua, Ruth, 1 Samuel chapter 1. This has to do with the birth of of Samuel. Chapter 1, verse 1, there was a certain man from, let's just call it Ramathim. How about that? A Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, and the son of Elihu, and uh, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children. But Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? I always have a 
hard time keeping a straight face with that line right there. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? There's a, there's a husband's line for you. And uh, verse 9, once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. I should explain that. That is, um, that is a way of showing dedication to the Lord. The most famous character, uh, long-haired character in the Bible, is, um, was a guy named Samson, who was dedicated by his parents to the Lord, and the razor never cut, touched his head. And that was a way of showing special dedication for God. It was, um, it was a category of people called and set aside, and they looked like it as well. And verse 12, she kept on praying to the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. So Eli, the high priest, answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And so in the course of time Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. And when the man Elkanah went up, and with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And after she, he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah, a flower, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And when they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. And I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you can read the rest of the story in 1 Samuel. Samuel is, as a young child, or there's no way of knowing exactly what the age is, but as a child, he's dedicated to this particular service of God. So he goes to live at the temple. And Hannah is given other children as well. So this was her firstborn that she dedicated to the Lord in this way. And so the story here is obviously about 
the desire of Hannah to have a child. To the Israelites, this was important because built into their whole culture is the notion of a Messiah coming from them for the whole world. And so motherhood was more than just the natural longings of women to have children because they are women, after all, biologically, um, that is a factor. But there was also a cultural and spiritual basis for this, the desire to be part of God's plan in this way. It's a subliminal text, uh, but it's there nevertheless. So we're going to talk about a few of the issues that are drawn out here. Number one, uh, takeaways for life. God is not the least bit offended by passionate prayer. Go for it. Part of what this story teaches us is she really wanted this child. She wanted this child even though she had a good life. She felt like part of her was unfulfilled. And she wanted this child, so she, talked, she prayed passionately about this. I think there is a lifestyle question here that's important for those of us who follow Christ is tell God what you want. If it's not what he wants, he can tell you. But be passionate about it. I think sometimes uh, Christians, we, we have a hard time striking this balance. Some demand that God jump when they say jump, which is a form of blasphemy. God is the boss. He's God. You wouldn't talk to him this way if you actually knew him. You wouldn't order him around. But on the other hand, there are people who are too quick to say, but we shouldn't tell God anything. We should just accept what comes our way, and this is God's will for us. The answer is, what do you want? What do you want? Tell God. Be passionate about it. God doesn't always answer in the way that you anticipated, but sometimes he does, and sometimes he wants to answer this way in this untimely manner because it makes a point that he's trying to make. All parents understand this, I'm pretty sure. You don't give your children what they want anytime they ask or whenever they ask. Sometimes you give them what they want, but in a different way or a different time. And that's exactly what happened with Hannah in this case. And then number two, whatever the value society gives to the role of mother, God's view matters most. Societies in various times and various places have placed a different value on the role of mother. I've provided for you a poem by William Ross Wallace entitled, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle is the Hand That Rules the World. Now this was actually written last year of the Civil War. And Mother's Day was actually presented or passionately presented to the U.S. government, President Wilson, by a lady named Anna Jarvis in 1914, First World War. This often overlooked aspect of war is the mothers, the home guard. Uh, those, and this, these are both linked to this. Now, this poem I don't think is particularly um, that great, but it's a, it's a historic one. But more important than the poem itself is the title. The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. You may know that this was a favorite expression of a famous dictator named Joseph Stalin. And that's because Marxism, or communism as it's most commonly known, actually incorporated this into its fundamental structure. Children need to be removed from the home as soon as possible before they're inculcated with the traditional structure and values 
that will destroy the value of the state's communal powers. Now, that's very easy to document. Uh, almost all of the writings from the revolution uh, in Soviet Union, what became the Soviet Union, in, include that. But it goes back way farther than that. Plato and the Republic talks about this. Children need to be removed from the home as soon as possible so they can be taught the values of the state, the communal values, because mothers, we know, have way too much power over their children. They have a lot of power over their children. Much of it is subliminal power, I would suggest, that... Uh, uh, a lot of people go through their lives rejecting or being angry at their mothers and don't even know it. And some of them go through lives imitating their mothers and don't even know it. And some of them are conscious of it. It's a good thing because there's a great deal of development that takes place in the womb and in the years immediately after that that is really hard to replace with anything else unless you have an agenda that might not be so godly in nature. Number three. Keep a balanced grip on your kids. They answer to God ultimately, and so do you. I mentioned already that there's an extreme in this. There are some parenting styles that are, are really qualify as psychological abuse. Maybe not physical abuse, but psychological abuse. Children who are raised believing they are owned by another human being. In other words, nothing about them has value unless it's exactly what mother and father dictate to them and these are sad cases of abuse that rarely get recognized as abuse but then there's the other side of the coin parents who say well just let the television or the teachers raise my child um, because it's easier to do that we answer to God as parents mothers and fathers we answer to God because he, we don't own these children number four your relationship with your parents will impact your kids' relationship with you. I think this is always worth mentioning on Mother's Day particularly, but Father's Day as well, is that how do you feel about your own mother? How have you treated your mother? How are you treating your mother? Have you forgiven your mother? Well, all these things come into the picture because um, history has a way of repeating itself. A lot of what, uh, what goes around comes around. It's uh, another one of those subliminal things that kids pick up sometimes. Don't uh, necessarily have to be taught it. If you do not respect the role of your mother, your children will not respect you. It's almost a law of nature. Certainly an observable law of practice. Number five. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. This is God's work too. I think that is a problem in society, in a capitalist society like ours, that has a tendency to honor those who participate in society in some way that's related to business or government or media. But the quiet role of one who raises children is not respected. And I think that's too bad because that is damaging to the next generation. Every society, however, has its own tendencies in those ways. But what I would like to suggest is that God's way will never lack God's supply. This is God's work too. Unfortunately, in Christian circles, sometimes the implication is given that only those who serve in official roles like pastors or missionaries, now the same, the professional, 
They are serving the Lord. I don't agree. They might be serving the Lord, but no more than those of you who mother or father your children or do things that have nothing to do with the public role in ministry. It's one of the diseases of established religion is that the professionals become the essence of those who do important things. And those who are not professionals are only here to support those who do. Your calling is at home, if that's your calling. If it's not, then your calling is someplace else. There's lots of ways to contribute to life and its meaning, to God's work, without it being that. But if it is that, if you are a mother or a father, talking about mothers today, see that as a calling. And don't shake your fist at back at God and say, I refuse this calling. I want something else over here. This is it. There might be more, but this is it for you. Everybody has their own place in life. And if it's not for you, then you've got one too. But this is it for that role today. See it as God's calling for you. And that's God's challenge for you and for the rest of us to support that, make it meaningful and honored. Father, we've already prayed that you would bless these mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers. We are just reminded that all of these roles come under the rubric of your place for us individually. I do pray your blessing on those who are in that role. But I also pray your blessing on those who are not in that role. That they too will sense, know their calling. And will use it in the same way. That we will not neglect that important role of the mother's responsibilities. But also that we will not neglect those who do other things that make it worthwhile to be in that role. We just ask, Lord, that you will show us, each of us, how to be good at what you have given us to do. And how to let go and see these charges as yours because you have given us this responsibility. It's a great privilege to serve you, God. Help us to do it.